Hello and welcome to another episode of Interregnum with Richard Seymour. Today I spoke with Richard about the recent wave of strikes in the UK and whether the upsurge of industrial action signals the long-hoped-for revival of Britain's labour movement. We also talked about why Mick Lynch of the RMT has been so effective in his media appearances defending the strikes, and we went on to talk about the cost-of-living crisis and whether high inflation portends the end of the era of cheap food and cheap fuel. Finally, we discussed why Richard believes that those Conservative politicians and their allies in the media who are seeking to unseat Boris Johnson may be making a serious mistake. I began the interview by asking Richard whether he shares the optimism of James Meadway, who recently wrote that we should expect more strikes and more protests. There is both the incentive in the form of excessive profits and there is the opportunity to take it in the tightening of post-pandemic labour markets. So I agree with some of James Medway's optimism. I think we have something to be hopeful for. But just to put this in perspective, you mentioned uh, decades of decline in union density and the rate of strike action. So what we're seeing here is that in the 12 months leading up to March, the TUC recorded about 300 industrial disputes across various industries. And as uh, James says, that reflects probably a combination of increased bargaining power due to you know the supply of labor squeeze um, an attempt to recoup wages lost during the pandemic and of course now due, uh, due to the credit crunch and of course the uh, soaring profit rate soaring profit rate by itself wouldn't necessarily lead to strike action we've seen very high corporate profits for years also if you look at I suppose the... I suppose the point James is making there is is contrasting it with the situation in the 1970s where profits were squeezed and and so that line of argument that you know wages need to be held down is less plausible now. Absolutely. Um uh, it and this is one of the reasons why there hasn't been this wave of public hostility. But I do just want to come back to the data on this so that we don't get carried away by some of the headlines talking about, you know, effectively riffing on the winter of discontent. So since 1991, days lost strike action in each year have been lower than in any year before 1991. And that is significant. It's significant for a number of reasons. One, it marks the consolidation of neoliberalism from being an insurgent right-wing project to being the centrist status quo. Two, Labour's acceptance of the Thatcher's anti-union laws really begins in late 1989 and uh, is consecrated in the 1992 manifesto with its commitment to no return to to the trade union legislation of the 1970s. And then that's linked to the shift from uh, occasionally offensive strike action to overwhelmingly defensive strikes. Uh, Now, we might want to query that distinction because strikes can often begin as a result of an employer offensive and end up winning more than they were threatened with losing. And that might happen now. But what I've just described is a global pattern, and it has been resistant to any new conditions from boom to credit crunch to public sector austerity. And what's more, most of the big strikes that did take place, you know, the big symbolic strikes like the firefighters, uh, big pensions dispute in 2011, were defeated I mean, there have been some significant successes, but there's a reason why strike action has been declining, and it's because it's it's very difficult to strike effectively. Just a few years ago, back in 2018, days lost to strike action were the lowest in recorded history. Put that in context, when I was writing against austerity a few years ago, I found that the share of days lost to strike action, working days lost to strike action, was so low 
that official statisticians didn't even bother putting a precise figure on it. It was less than 0.005%. And since most of these strikes are in the public sector, as you mentioned, that's an utterly marginal disruption to the flow of profit, which is the main leverage that you have as a worker. Then there's union density, and you know I don't want to go into detail on that, but just to say, less than 13% of private sector workplaces are unionized, let alone having seen a picket line. So we have to be careful about overstating this. It is welcome, the uptick in the combativity of the organized working class. It's welcome that there's the broad support of labor voters for the RMT strike. Mike Lynch's emergence as a de facto working class spokesman. Keir Starber's inability to impose cabinet discipline on not appearing on picket lines. Even more welcome would be the appearance in the UK of organizing tribes of the kind that we've seen in the US. So that that would be... Um, where I would be looking. I mean, just on the US, a lot of the enthusiasm around the prospects for the labour movement in America is is the fact of these uh, unionisation drives in, in the private sector and especially in parts of the more modern sectors of the US economy, such as, such as Amazon. We have seen some efforts in the so-called gig economy here, but do you think we are in that respect somewhat behind the US or is it partly just reflective of the fact that the US doesn't really have a public sector in the same way that, that exists in the, in the UK? A bit of both. Um, we we definitely are behind the U.S. in in several ways. First of all, the turn to the left in the U.S. Uh, predates that in the U.K. by several years. So Bernie Sanders' breakthrough didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of a, a sort of palpable turn to the left on a whole series of uh, political and social questions. And you could, I mean, this might be a bit tendentious, but you could trace it back to the uh, successes of the anti-war movement there and the organizing questions that that raised. So, you know, we are a little bit behind, but obviously saying that we're behind might imply that we're going to end up following suit. And that's not necessarily the case. It is true that if you want to organize workers today, you should be focusing on uh, the sectors of the labor market that have the most potential leverage and that are most important to the long-term reproduction of capital. And today that's logistics um, and firms like Amazon and delivery firms and so on, where work is low-waged, incredibly de-skilled, highly controlled by management, and where uh, it's often quite precarious, particularly in the so-called gig economy. Um, but that would be where there would be scope for organizing people because workforces there, in a strange way, are quite concentrated. That's certainly true of like big Amazon warehouses. It's true in a different way of uh, those working in the gig economy because they're connected up by their apps. They're part of um, a national workforce and they have a, a, a very obvious and palpable claim to not just be self-employed uh, contractors as they're treated. So there, there are some possible openings there. Going back to the RMT and to Mick Lynch, you make the point in a recent blog post that for all the success of, of his media appearances, which has been you know, both heartening and very, very funny, a problem we have is that the working conditions of RMT members is not typical of, of working people in the UK more generally. And you argue it's therefore hard for their struggle to stand in for uh, the working class more broadly. Could you, could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, although, to be clear, I, I think it's, it's very obvious that many people have seen a resonance uh, with their conditions. I mean, we saw 
uh, after Mike Lynch's uh, TV appearances that there was a massive upsurge in searches by people for the phrase, how do I join a union? So there's a sense in which he's really conveyed that message that, you know, unions uh, are not your enemy. They can actually do something for you. But nonetheless, it is true and has been true in the UK for about 40 years that there's been increasing segmentation and stratification of the workforce, that there are groups of relatively well-protected unionized workers um, who are important for core sectors of capital. Um, transit is an obvious one. And that's obviously where they are here, concentrated, who have uh, more leverage than a large layer of increasingly precaritized workers and people who can much more easily be sacked. This is one of the reasons why class consciousness, despite its resilience, is sometimes quite thin. So we live in a country where social attitude surveys show that most people self-identify as working class consistently, despite the fact that class is rarely discussed in the national media, except when prefaced with the word white, and working class people aren't there that well represented. But class consciousness persists without it resulting in uh, hitherto uh, major determining effects on how politics unfolds. I don't want to overstate this because obviously class had something to do with uh, the Corbyn phenomenon, and I would expect it to, um, you know, incipient forms of class consciousness, such as we saw around Grenfell, for example, to uh, drive future movements. So I'm not, you know, totally pessimistic about this, but just, you know, we inherit a lot of weakness. But one thing that gives me uh, a lot of let's say, incipient optimism, is that when Mike Lynch appeared, he was subject to the usual battery of techniques. Uh, I refer to the class dressing down, you know, where essentially you get very well-paid, educated, preened and manicured dullards berating and baiting working-class people. And I refer to uh, the public humiliation of Shanine Thorpe, which she got an apology for. Um, but that stuff happens all the time when working class people are brought on television. Lynch, obviously, is a seasoned class fighter. He knows exactly what he's talking about. He's very well prepared. And also he has a kind of non-official outsider status, which is very good in the current climate. And he had a willingness to speak beyond the sectional interests of his members. You know, I remember Bob Crow going on national television and being asked about, you know, public hostility to the RMT. And he sort of, he quoted the Millwall slogan, you don't like us, we don't care. It was very funny. And it was uh, the right thing to say at the time. But obviously, Lynch's strategy of saying, if you were represented by a union, and you need to be, then you would have things a lot easier. Things would be a lot better for you. You would get the pay rise that you deserve. That's gone over really well. And do you think that is partly because Lynch just recognises that in the current climate, uh, it is possible to make inroads with public opinion in a, in a way that possibly wasn't the case for, for Bob Crow at the time? That's probably the case um, because you know Bob Crow was uh, you know working primarily in the context of regnant centrism, and it's not that the majority were won over to this, but that 
enough people were, and the rest were sort of scattered into various forms of melancholia um, and de- de- detachment and disaffection, um, not bothering to vote, not really interested in politics. You know, really the, the perspective of politics doesn't look after me, so I'm going to look after myself. So we're in a different uh, environment now where the role of the state is much more salient and the fact that representative institutions seem to be unable to represent a popular will is problematized rather than something that people just makes people just turn away. I mean it's complicated there are all these different tendencies happening at once but there are tendencies that favor political breakthroughs. Do you think the the fact that media commentators and politicians have been deploying this notion of a, of a of a threatening wage price spiral shows the weakness of their position because that's not really a story that would seem to correspond with the experience of, of many uh, working people in the UK right now and you know obviously we expect lines from those quarters to be uh, dishonest and to be to be inaccurate but you also expect them to have a certain degree of, of of traction that can speak to something that is true in 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 the lives of ordinary people whereas the wage price spiral just just seems nonsensical really as, a, as an argument right now yeah um there's a bit of look there, there's a a small amount of truth in this in that as uh, james midway pointed out there are labor shortages that has contributed to some pay rises, um, like over 2021 pay rises, uh, you know, started to happen in quite a serious way. Um, but obviously, this, the, these wage rises are well below the rate of inflation, which obviously makes the whole idea that it's wage rises that are driving inflation implausible. So I think this is basically a combination of um, stalemate of the political establishment, their inability to generate a plausible narrative for what they're doing, the breakdown of Brexit as this floating signifier that could cohere quite heteroclite uh, groups of people. But then there's also, it's a bit like after the credit crunch. You remember after the credit crunch when neoliberalism was supposed to be dead and then suddenly, and very quickly, all the dominant institutions started spouting austerity. Um, And I would say that there's a kind of resistance, a stickiness to materialized ideology when ideology is materialized in state apparatuses and where there you know that's how specialist knowledge of how capitalism works is constituted it may be wildly wrong but it's resilient it sticks around it needs to be dislodged and the dislodging of that um austerian consensus took some time the breakdown of neoliberalism is taking some time it's not straightforward and the bank of england orthodoxy more or less remains what it is and, you know, then obviously, finally, there's the element of class purview in this. Naturally, as a, a just a corollary of being in the social position that they're in, they're going to find wage rises quite threatening. But I think it's also a, a kind of interpolation directed at the middle class, certainly for the Tories, who rely on mobilizing middle class voters. Um, they tried using this in Tiverton and Huntington. Um, I think it's called the um, by-election. The by-election. Yeah, yeah um, and it, it didn't really work. Uh, you know, they were talking about the RMT driving up wages, selfish, overpaid uh, workers, etc. But you can see that it's 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 grabbing onto a, a a little nub of reality and some traditional strategies of class mobilization and traditional orthodoxies that are embedded in the state apparatus. And I agree with you. It, it's it's not plausible. It's not going to work. 
Um, unless we see a point where wages really do start soaring, but uh, that would be a cause for some celebration, I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's a bit hard to to read too much into by election results because um, yeah. they're relatively inconsequential. So it's it, it, it's possible that something that doesn't work in a by election does work in um, in a general election. But yes, yeah. On inflation itself, are, are you in the camp that regards this as you know a relatively uh, short-term issue, or do you think we are indeed looking at the end of cheap food and and, and cheap energy? I partly ask because I think there certainly can be a tendency on the left to to see in, in moments of economic crisis the kind of you know the sort of aha moment that, you know here here it is here is the crisis of capitalism that is really going to upend everything and and, and force a, a progressive or even revolutionary change. And the pushing up against the limits of the planet's capacity to to allow our economy to grow in the way that it's that it's been used to would would seem to to fit with that. But we know, of course, that the adaptability and resourcefulness of capitalism and its ability to survive is something that has continually uh, surprised and, and confounded the left. Oh, absolutely, hundred percent. And um, you might remember I debated uh, Adam Tooze about this a few months ago, and you know I, I have some sympathy. Um, I don't agree with it, but I have some sympathy for the the basic Keynesian position, which is that you can disaggregate the causes of a crisis and deal with them one by one, rather than getting carried away with the language of crisis, which can actually be very good for the right, for conservatives and so on. Um, and so there's a warning against the kind of chateau tropism of the left. Um but uh, as regards what's happening, what's concretely happening with inflation, as far as I'm concerned, it's our old friend overdetermination. You just look at the inputs. Okay, energy supply chains in crisis, partly due to some ecological blowbacks, um, wildfires, floods, raising the cost of extraction and transport, partly due to Russia's war in Ukraine, which has a more mediated relationship to the ecological crisis, let's say. And, you know, this is why biden administration has been briefing their frustration with their own strategy of sanctions because they fear it's uh, just driving up inflation it's also why the g7 is looking at energy price caps which is a big shift from peak d to the wto era but then another cause is the moderate surge in post-covid demand as a lot of the money that was saved up during lockdown period is released into spending i mean i want to be clear about this even with those savings, which do exist for a certain group of people, the rate of household debt remains perilously high. Um, so not much has changed since the credit crunch in that respect. But there is also the very tight labor market, which is, again, a, a post-COVID phenomenon, partly driven uh, by policy, the policy of infrastructural investments. And I think uh, that's um, resulted in a tight labor market. Uh, and possibly aggravated by the great resignation, so-called, as workers take the opportunity to seek new careers. So you can see uh, overdetermination in the simple sense here that there are issues and crises from different levels in the social structure converging in the form of price signals. Many of them are short term. Many of them will disappear um, uh, fairly soon. But as I've argued elsewhere, and I think I agree with James Midway on this too, there are long-term pressures towards increasing the cost of energy extraction, declining energy return on investment, growing stresses on food yields as a result of ecological blowback, um, you know, eroding soil fertility and so on. So medium to long term, we're going to see more and more pressures on exactly what you call cheap food and cheap energy. 
that's going to be a major problem for capital states on their legitimacy and on the political coalition between capitalism and fossil fuels. And I just think this is how structural crises always manifest themselves. When you saw the energy crisis in the 70s and the recessions that came about then, they were multiply determined too, but there were still some congealing structural logics involved. So the only thing I would say about this is I agree with the, you know, the kind of critique of two is that we shouldn't approach this with any particular glee because the right is extremely good at adapting to and mobilizing for crises, as indeed is the ruling class, which has the materials, the money, the men in place, etc., to make such adaptations. In terms of um, how the major powers and you know, major capitalist centres might respond to the current situation and, and, and this uh, prospect of high inflation for a long time into the, into the future, in a recent blog post you wrote about um, what you describe as uh, another option for imperialist states, uh, a form of accumulation by dispossession, wherein trade policy backed by military and treasury power is used to increase the export of energy and materials to the imperial core. Could you talk a bit more about that and also whether you regard Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine as, as part of that logic? That's really interesting. Um, I, I don't know about Russia's invasion of Ukraine because it doesn't seem to have much strategic sense to me. It doesn't look like a pragmatic intervention to um, expand material resources, although obviously that does exist and they have been purloining steel from the Azovstal factory in uh, uh, eastern Ukraine, in Mariupol. So there's there's always those logics. But in general, I think it's going to be much more about geopolitical competition with China. You know, we've already seen how China has got ahead of the game on uh, rare metals, for example. Um, we've seen how China has got ahead of the game on other uh, sources of green energy and, you know, like new uh, technologies as well. This is going to be a big problem for the United States and the whole constellation of powers that have looked to the United States for imperial leadership. Then, of course, there's the problem that when the pink tide in Latin America was predominantly extractivist, the majority of its expressions were compatible with the requisites of U.S. imperialism, let's say. So, for example, in states like Ecuador, you can see that they didn't particularly like the Ecuadorian government, but they saw some of the policies as necessary modernizations. It's clear that the internal perspective of U.S. diplomats was, uh, you know, this is not a government that we particularly like, but they're not a real problem and we can work with them. So there wasn't going to be a drive towards coups and death squads uh, in the sort of style of the 1980s. But what happens when you get Pedro Castillo, um, uh, Gustavo Petro and Gabriel Boric? One way in which they can be contained, obviously, is it's through just straightforward political sabotage. They're surrounded by enemies anyway. Uh, Castile, I think, has uh, struggled immensely and has lost an enormous amount of uh, popularity as a result of being unable to build a governing coalition and keep control of the state apparatuses. But it's entirely plausible that the United States, perhaps under a different administration, we don't know, uh, will turn towards support for far-right movements, towards uh, forms of third-world uh, fascism, as Chomsky and Herman used to call it. And uh, I think that are likely to be more contexts in which there will be wars fought out 
as effectively as proxy wars. There isn't yet a major rival to the US's position as the dominant global imperialist state. There are a series of regional challenges, there are a series of fractures, and so there is every chance for them to recoup their position and therefore to keep you know, the supplies of materials and energies flowing in a way that benefits the core uh, capitalist countries. Going back to the very high levels of business profits that we've we've seen since the, the pandemic and, and and during the uh, the initial rebound, those profits have been particularly concentrated amongst the largest and most powerful corporations, and and there seems to be a lot of uh, popular anger towards the energy uh, corporations in particular. Um, but preceding that, we've seen leaders of the, of the tech giants uh, increasingly becoming very visible figures of popular hostility, uh, most conspicuously Jeff Bezos and, and Mark Zuckerberg. Do you think that the narrower concentration of of profit and and the prominence of these leaders of the tech giants provides opportunities for the left that would be less apparent if we'd seen a a, a broader distribution of profits? Um, Yeah, no. I mean, mean, first of all, before, before we go any further, let's not forget Elon Musk. I mean... There is an example of um, the FICO oral transmission of wealth, if that's possible. <laughs> um, I think that um, on the one hand, the um, increase in billionaire wealth, and what we've really seen here is billionaire worth wealth increasing by a vastly greater amount than global GDP has increased, which tells you that this is about the transfer of wealth, both within the ruling class and to the ruling class. And one of the effects of that is to create much more power for outliers who can basically fund reactionary projects that are not necessarily compatible with the long-term goals of business, but which are, let's say, strategically useful for fighting against uh, any incipient left-wing revival. So that's one part of it. And certainly where you see billionaires being politically dominant, as in Hungary or in India, where they have been able, or in the United Kingdom to an extent, where they've been able to monopolize large sectors of the media, as opposed to, say, for example, the United States, where a a company like the Washington Post has has historically had multiple owners, um, you know, as opposed to it being, you know, Jeff Bezos, um, that creates much more openings for anti-democratic coalitions um, between media and state power, if that is a a distinction with any difference. So that's a a danger that we face. But yes, in terms of agitation and publicity, it's very clear that the emergence of a kind of oligarchy makes something visible. Um, and it gives, you know, I mean, we're always wary of resentment as a driving force in politics and naming individual figures as monsters like, you know, Bill Gates and so on. But uh, it's useful to have names and faces um, sometimes. And I think that um, one of the problems that we had in 2019, Will Davies made this point, uh, is that in large parts of the country, they don't really see billionaires. The billionaire you class. You don't encounter them. Exactly. What you encounter is your local labor council cutting everything and being hopeless. And uh, obviously what you encounter is the, the front page of the newspapers constantly ramming racist propaganda down your throat. So there has been that difficulty. But if the billionaire class, as Bernie likes to call it, becomes more salient, uh, it will do as a stand-in 
uh, as a metonym for the ruling class as such, and uh, it will organize uh, sort of moral responses. The, the problem that we've had thus far has been that there's no, you know, capitalism in terms of its internal logic and grammar has no concept of enough, right? Now, for ecological activists, this is a problem, and this is why they turn to indigenous concepts of enoughness. But for, for, for the wider left as well, there's also, you know, a problem in as much as there's a general sense that rich people have a bit too much, but there's no sort of sense of, well, how much is too much? And what is that based on? And so you get a lot of people who have this uh, sort of shrugging approach, like, good luck to him, you know. Um, I would like to have that much money and invest in a kind of lottery approach to capitalism. So there's been that issue. But now if we start to see, first of all, the existence of a billionaire oligarchy being very visibly and palpably demonstrated. Second of all, it's clear antagonism to its workforce. You know, if you start to see strikes in the companies that they own. And thirdly, a real, relatively sustained left-wing campaign. It's not going to come from the Labour Party. That's very obvious. But, you know, we can organize in other ways um, to, with message discipline, just hammer this home. As Bernie does, you know, the, the billionaires and billionaire class against the working class and so on. We can take the incipient class consciousness that is already there and start to give it some shape, definition, and harder edges, and make it more resilient and more likely to be con conducive to future left-wing projects, be they social movements, electoralism, or whatever. Regarding the, the Labour Party, so I think on social media, one of the responses that I've seen, although it's not always spelled out exactly, so there's a question as, as to how fair my reading is or not, but I, but I think sometimes in some of the reaction you've seen to the RMT strikes and to the media appearances from from Mick Lynch, there seems to be this this view of oh okay we can sort of we can forget about uh, electoral politics we should put all our focus on on union struggles and and obviously given the, the state of the Labour Party right now I think you know obviously there's a lot a lot to that but uh, you know in in a in a recent blog post you wrote that the cost of living crisis is a is a civilizational crisis and that trade union struggle is going to be essential but insufficient can you explain why Trade union struggle is not enough in the, in the in the current context. Well, in the straightforward sense that they are going to fight for improvements in their workers' conditions, which is their job, on the terms of capitalist exploitation, on the terms of capitalist growth, and you see the political manifestation of that in the union's often ambivalent relationship to uh, ecological struggles. For example, one of the reasons why the RMT voted against the Green New Deal was because they, they represent a group of workers who worked with clean coal. And Unite uh, urged MPs to vote in favour of uh, Heathrow expansion because that's a source of good union jobs. Um, I, I mean, it is a critique, but it's not a moral condemnation. You can see where it's coming from, but it's also very short-sighted and it's a kind of sectional logic. Um, that needs to be overcome. So, you, uh, yeah. sorry, Richard. I mean, do do you think it is short-sighted? Because I mean, I think you know you could make the argument that if the unions are looking out at the wider political context and it's not clear there's much help coming from elsewhere, that in those circumstances actually it's the appropriate one. And and you know, rather than waiting for the unions to take a more long-sighted view, it's for the rest of the left to sort of build up other capacities, whether that's electoral or extra parliamentary and and so on. 
I would say it is short-sighted because this uh, crisis is coming for their members. And because uh, as it comes, one of the problems is going to be that if their members' living standards is dependent on capital's growth, then they're going to suffer. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're going to be negotiating on the terms of pay cuts, uh, and, you know, deteriorating conditions. Of course, it's possible that, uh, we do see a revival in union, uh, militancy, union membership, and class confidence. But, you know, absent that, then basically this crisis is going to consume the working class. Um, when I say that this, the cost of living crisis is a civilizational crisis, I'm talking really about the ecological aspect of it. I'm talking about uh, the uh, likely rise in uh, the cost of energy extraction and therefore the likely rise in the cost of energy, even if there weren't this rent-seeking by energy giants, which politicians could do something about but choose not to. Um, even if it weren't for that, we're going to see price rises and they're going to be episodic and, uh, you know, cumulative over time. Now, obviously, all such predictions are, you know, subject to uh, all sorts of contingencies like technical improvements in the discovery of oil, for example, or in the discovery of other metals, like advances in the energy transition and how that works out and so on. But the one thing I keep coming back to is ecological blowback and the fact that this is a very real palpable thing that we've seen unfold uh, over the last few years, having absolutely direct and demonstrable consequences um, in terms of supply chains and energy costs. Um, never mind all this, the, the sort of blowbacks that are mediated through politics and take a form of, let's say, uh, political ruptures, uh, successes for the far right, and so on. That's much more complicated. So given this, I don't think that you're wrong to say that we need to look beyond the unions and build up other forces. And I don't think you're wrong to say that the unions will calculate that, look, if, if, if we're going to be left to fight on our own, given the collapse of the Corbyn project and so on, then uh, it makes sense for us to focus on, you know, improving our lot uh, within those narrow confines. But that has been the logic of the so-called new realism within trade unionism since the 1980s. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm well aware that the uh, makeup and the orientation of the trade union leaderships and the bureaucracy has changed uh, enormously in the last 20 years. I'm well aware that the new realism doesn't adequately describe what's going on. But even though th there's been this shift to the left, they are still confined within the uh, objective uh, material limitations that they inherited, and therefore some of the sort of mental habits in terms of what can be achieved um, and what is realistic in a given situation. And there is, um, I think, a reasonable and not merely sectarian or factional left critique to be made of even some of the best union leaders like Len McCluskey. You've also been blogging about the prospects for the Conservative Party in the current uh, situation. And in particular, you've written about Boris Johnson, who is extremely unpopular just now. It's taken as, as being a near certainty within the Conservative Party that, that he won't be uh, leader or prime minister in, in fairly short order. But you argue that the Tories might actually be making a mistake in trying to replace Johnson. Um, can you explain why you think he is still, uh, in some respects at least, uh, an electoral asset to the Conservatives? Well, uh, I mean, these terms are relative. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, he's an electoral asset in as much as um, he is the only one 
out of um, a fairly miserable bunch who can sort of unite their various factions, albeit on, on the terms of the right, who is broadly charismatic, who can communicate what is basically a brutal message, and who can dance around the media. Um, I think that the alternatives are either you're going to get something like um, updated Cameron Osbornism you know, through Rishi Sunak, which wouldn't have much popular appeal. And, you know, the, as always, the media massively overestimated his gifts, his talents and his charm. Um, and it turns out that he's uh, becoming quite unpopular. Um, or you get uh, a culture warrior like Liz Truss. I mean, the idea that Liz Truss was even in the running um, is monstrous. Um, I, I realize, of course, that we should not be too impressed by our sense of intellectual or moral superiority over these leaders because everybody thought Trump was no good and then he got in and uh, it turned out that he was very skilled at what he was doing. But I don't think Liz Truss fits in that category and I don't think the Tories have anybody else like that. I think Boris Johnson is just the ruthless... Um, uh, what, what was the term that... Um, Aaron Davis, the sociologist, used um, reckless, reckless opportunity. Exactly, he's exactly that kind of person, and that's exactly what they need. Obviously, the the, the crisis that he's found himself engulfed in um, is not just the consequence of of a sort of organic public disgust at his actions and and uh, you know response to Partygate and so on, but but it also reflects the disenchantment with him of the conservative media and much of the conservative party. They've decided to to take him on and, and to try and replace him. Yeah. Do you think that this now becomes possible? The idea of unseating Johnson becomes possible because of their relative strength. They have you know a pretty sizable majority. They may fear Labour to some extent, but obviously you know it's it's I mean. Yeah, <laughs> to an extent. Um, but if we think about the moment when Johnson came to power, it was a moment of existential crisis for the Conservative Party. They were threatened by the Brexit Party and they turned to Johnson in a moment of uh, of real crisis where it seemed there was a real threat that the, the Conservative Party might might really be destroyed. Yeah. And do you think that now they're, they're not in that kind of position where the external factors are imposing that kind of discipline upon them? And the reality is that the Conservative Party is an extremely divided one. I mean, we tend to think of this more regarding Labour, but nonetheless, the, the Conservative Party today it has a kind of ultra reactionary populist right wing and it has people who are much more enamored with you know somebody like uh, you know Jeremy Hunt or, or or yeah more sort of Cameronite figures I mean absolutely look the, the it's often forgotten that the 2010 to 2015 parliament was the most rebellious in history because of the um fractiousness uh, the schismatic nature of the conservative party and I think that there are various reasons for this. Uh, as um, a fairly orthodox Marxist, I tend to think of it uh, in relation to schisms between uh, the class fractions making up uh, the Conservative Party. But yeah, I, I think that they're thinking in an extremely short-termist way. I wouldn't say that they um, evince discipline when they got run behind Johnson. I just think, I mean, because you have to remember that uh, Johnson had to purge large numbers of MPs, withdraw the whip from them. Um, he had to be extraordinarily ruthless, and he had uh, Dominic Cummings um, uh, guiding him on a strategy with this. But what seems to have happened now is that that rudder, the sense of an insurgent project that's going to remake the state um, uh, and use Brexit as the platform from which to do so, that's been lost. You know, this is a government that is not setting the pace of events. 
Um, it has been blindsided by events and forced to do things repeatedly that it doesn't really fundamentally believe in, like these cash transfers in response to energy crises. Um, I, I don't think they had much of an alternative but to go along with this, um, uh, you know, to offer people some money. But they don't really believe in that in any fundamental way. And therefore, they're being bounced around by events. Like, in the same way, I think, with the, the, the COVID-19 crisis, fundamentally, Johnson probably did the best thing he could have done for uh, the Conservative Party's survival in that he didn't pursue a, a Trump or Bolsonaro-style strategy or anti-strategy. Um, but at the same time, from a Conservative point of view, to hear the Conservative ranks the sensible thing to do probably would have been to go far right and to say we're pursuing freedom. And therefore, all this stuff about parties, you know, Downing Street parties, would not have hurt him so badly because that would be democratized. He'd be saying, I want everybody to be having parties and spreading COVID. So uh, I can see that Johnson is is in a bit of a bind because he's... uh, as an opportunist, he vacillates between placating his right wing and sort of steering back to the, the, the middle ground. I can also see that his stock, I mean, you refer to him as a political asset, and that reminds me of Will Davies' sort of analysis of Johnson as a financial asset, and his stock has obviously fallen, you know, as a commodity bearing the hopes of investors. Um, you could compare him perhaps to a kind of uh, Uber or one of those outfits where, you know, it doesn't have that much intrinsic value, but um, a lot of people's hopes have been invested in it. So I can see all of that uh, ha- adding up there. But at the same time, uh, the the situation remains what it was before. Um, the Conservative Party doesn't have a viable alternative to the broadly right populist strategy that Johnson hitched his wagon to. And they don't have a leadership candidate who has the charisma, um, the domineering capability, the charm even, uh, the ability to game the media that Johnson has. So I don't really think that, you know, when the Telegraph goes after Johnson, you know, his old haunt goes after Johnson, I don't really think they've thought this through, um, at least in terms of any long-term thinking. I think they're being pushed around, as um, stock market investors often are, by the order of appearances, by immediate short-term fluctuations, and by the idea of getting a short-term yield, that's very good for finance, uh, financial capital. It's just not very good for doing politics. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.